Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strotter. Longtime listeners know the story of why I co-founded ACONS. I would often deconstruct the day's news cycle at the dinner table in front of my children. And instead of grousing in front of the kids, I decided to model the whole redress of grievances uh, thing in our Constitution uh, by exercising my First Amendment free speech rights. Though I never dreamed that it would lead to White House invitations for me, or serving on Black Voices for Trump, or working for and with Alan West, um, I still do what I do for my kids and their posterity. As I get older, uh, Ephesians 5, 15, and 16 uh, speaks to me clearer than ever. And it says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools but wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. But let's go back a few verses and you have my raison d'etre. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Here's the kicker. As I stated in my latest blog post over the weekend at AfricanAmericanConservatives.com, it's not done in secret any longer. When I was growing up, it was what one does in the privacy of one's own bedroom shouldn't be anyone else's business. It's gone from that to same-sex marriage, and I have a lot to say about that, too. In that blog post, uh, I link to this past weekend's blog post, to now full-on twerking, laying on children, having children stuff money down the G-strings of scantily clad adults, adult males, and dancing provocatively to sexually explicit, sexually graphic, as in this video, extremely profanity-laced lyrics with children present. And look at these videos if you need more proof. Think of the walls? I got 20. But who cares? Only Thank you. 
has since excised this from their website, but they said they were about disrupting the nuclear family. And that's what this is about. Normalizing behavior that is not normal. There's a thread from Andy Ngo who reports on an 11-year-old that is headlining a drag event uh, this weekend, this coming weekend in Oregon, uh, with the mother's support, by the way. Um, and this child's drag mentor has a checkered past, including child pornography. Shocker. Um, and there was another story that was very similar to that, where there were drag queens in some kind of story hour and uh, showed this video with this drag queen. And turns out a number of child pornography charges. Who'd have thunk it? Um, and I'm sure that there are many others. Now, the blog post that I wrote that I'm referencing, uh, referencing um, was initially about a lawmaker who wanted Child Protective Services to remove kids from stable homes if their parents didn't affirm their identity. Now, she's since backpedaled, uh, saying that she won't in introduce the legislation because even members of her own party distanced themselves from her. Now, I believe the agenda is much, much darker. When you have even members of the gay community saying that these drag events with kids have crossed a line, you know that we have reached a limit. Now, as I said in this blog, and you can find it again at AfricanAmericanConservatives.com, it's called Children and Families, the uh, Society's Last Frontier. Uh, these adults are counseling our kids in secret to transition and using affirming language. All this, yet no one would lift a finger to help a kid who wanted to become a Christian get baptized. Uh, do Christians call on CPS to remove kids from atheist homes? Uh, yet we're the ones indoctrinating children and shoving our religion down people's throats, indoctrinating kids, putting our beliefs in your face. Let the irony of that sink in. Those videos that we saw, who's putting whose business in whose face? So we've gotten to a very dangerous place in our society where the inmates are running Arkham Asylum, by the way. We've got kids on TikTok. Get this. Kids on TikTok saying their pronouns are ghost and ghost self. Use that in a sentence. Well, ghost self, instead of theirs, themselves, ghost self. People are being banned from social media platforms for dead naming, using uh, the former opposite sex name of someone who has transitioned. Well, here are my pronouns. Her Royal Majesty and Your Majesty. I mean, I am a, a child of the king, so why not? It's challenge accepted time for me. I will be exposing these stories. I will be speaking up and speaking out. 
if these folks have a right to just be who they are, so do I. Our guest today is Robert P. George. Robert P. George is the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence, the director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University, and a frequent visiting professor at Harvard Law School. This is the reboot of our podcast, and previously he has been a guest of ours, and so we are pleased to welcome back to the show, Robert P. George. Thank you, Marie. It's a pleasure to be back on the show. Thank you for the invitation. Of all the banjo virtuosos that we know, <laughs> you are easily our favorite. How <laughs> did you pick up the instrument, and what are some of your favorite pieces to play? Well, I was born and brought up in the hills of West Virginia, right in the very heart of Appalachia, where banjos are issued to little boys at birth. Uh, so I came by my banjo playing very honestly. Uh, the truth is that I uh, started playing the banjo when I was about uh, 12 years old. I loved the music uh, of uh, Lester Flatt and Earl Scruggs and the other great yes. bluegrass artists of the founding generation of bluegrass music. Bluegrass is not an old musical genre. Uh, it was born in uh, 1945, in December of 1945 when Earl Scruggs, the great three-finger banjo yes. player, worked out an entirely new way of playing the banjo, uh, appeared for the first time on stage at the Grand Ole Opry uh, with the mandolinist and vocalist Bill Monroe and his band called the Bluegrass Boys. And it was that evening that bluegrass music was born. It was the traditional mountain music of Kentucky, Eastern Kentucky, played by Bill Monroe, with the add-on now of Scruggs's very distinctive style of, of playing. And I love that music. I've always loved that music. I call it Appalachian classical music. It really yes. is the track to my life as a, uh, as a born and bred uh, hillbilly from, uh, from West Virginia. Uh, some of my favorite numbers are the old classic Earl Scruggs banjo uh, instrumentals, Foggy Mountain Breakdown, yes. uh, Flint Hill Special, uh, Ground Speed, uh, dear old Dixie, uh, Scruggs was an incredible virtuoso on the instrument and such a great uh, uh, innovator. Even the great banjo players who have now taken the five-string banjo and that basic style of playing to new heights, uh, heights that no one uh, in the early days ever could have imagined, Bela Fleck, for example, yes. will say, and I've heard Bela Fleck himself say this, I am a disciple of Earl Scruggs. Well, that's certainly true for me. I'm a disciple of Earl Scruggs, and I think all bluegrass banjo players, no matter where they've taken the instrument belong, be, beyond the, uh, the basic Scruggs style of playing, we're all disciples of Earl Scruggs. You love some great music. I also love their music and also Bela Fleck and the Flecktones. So yeah, great. <laughs> now in uh, 2013, after the death of Senator Frank Lautenberg, New Jersey conservatives began retweeting the following tweet. Uh, memo to Governor Christie on Senate vacancy. Two words, Robbie George. <laughs> How close to, to uh, did this goal of seeing you called Senator George come to be realized? Well, my goodness, the country has enough problems without having me in the United <laughs> States Senate. So uh, we, we, uh, we dodged a bullet on, uh, on that one. Uh, that was very flattering. Uh, some of my fellow New Jersey uh, conservatives thought that I was the guy for the job. Uh, I don't think I'd be very good at, uh, at, at practical uh, politics. I love thinking about political ideas. I like thinking about the common good. 
Uh, I love thinking about American ideals and institutions, the basic uh, principles uh, and, uh, and instrumentalities uh, created by our Constitution, the principles that are embodied in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and then the institutions by which we seek to effectuate those, uh, those principles. I love talking about those things. I love teaching about those things. I love engaging in discussion and debate about those things. Uh, whether I would be much of a politician, I sincerely doubt. I have uh, had some practical experience, not in electoral politics, but I've served, I guess, on three uh, federal uh, commissions now. I chaired one, uh, and I served as the American member of one international uh, commission. The American commissions were uh, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. I, I served on that from... Um, 1993 to 1998, I was appointed by President George H.W. Bush literally on his last day in office uh, on January 20th of uh, 1993 in the morning before Bill Clinton was sworn in. I guess I was uh, I was President uh, Bush's revenge against President Clinton for beating him in the 92 <laughs> election. But I served on that uh, uh, commission, and then uh, from 20 yeah, from 2002, 2002 to 2009, I served uh, on the U.S. President's Council on Bioethics. That was under President George W. Uh, Bush. Uh, and I there had the uh, pleasure of serving under the chairmanship of the great Leon Cass, the great University of Chicago bioethicist Leon Cass. And then uh, in 2000. Um, 14, no, 2012, I was appointed uh, to the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, which I then became chairman of, and I served on that commission until 2016. The International Commission uh, was UNESCO's World Commission on the Ethics of Science and Technology, and I was the American uh, member of, uh, of that commission for a while. Like you, I, I am intrigued by politics, but I don't know how uh, I would be able to live in that environment for very long. <laughs> Academic <laughs> politics is challenging enough for me. Yes, yes. The real thing might be beyond my capacity. <laughs> now, you've posted an essay of advice for young men who are or will soon become fathers on Facebook recently. Um, and that quickly became uh, very popular. What inspired this essay and what are some of the points that you made with it? Well, I can tell you exactly, Marie, what inspired it. I wrote that uh, little reflection on advice for new fathers and fathers-to-be on my father's birthday, the day my father mm. turned 97. My father, God bless him, is still alive. He's not in good shape. Oh. He's in very poor health, living mm. in West Virginia, in our hometown in, in, in West Virginia. He's now in a uh, nursing facility. But I was thinking on that day of him and all that he's meant to me and how much of what has gone well in my life is directly attributed, uh, attributable uh, to my father. And so I thought, well, just thinking about what my father did for me, what advice do I have for my own son uh, when he has children, which he will soon? And uh, what advice do I have for other young men uh, who are fathers or becoming fathers. And I just jotted it down. And uh, it began with something that I observed through my entire boyhood and into adulthood in my father, the way he loved and served my mother mm. with strength, with humility, but with attention and affection 
mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, a genuine uh, regard for her. He always honored my mother. And that's a gift not only to a wife to have a husband love you in that way. It's a gift to your children. Yes, it is. They observe you mm-hmm. honoring their mother. And you model what a man should be, the attitude he should adopt toward the woman who is the mother of his his children. My my father was magnificent in that and in so many other ways. He was always my hero, uh, Murray. Um, when I was 12 years old, this is literally true, I watched him run into a burning building, a burning house, to rescue a paraplegic man in a wheelchair who uh, was about to be killed in a fire, which he himself had started. Uh, He had started the fire because he was angry with his own wife. She had driven away from the house. He had threatened to burn the house down with himself in it on a number of occasions. And this time he did it. I remember seeing the explosion. He had turned on the gas, closed all the windows and doors, lit a match. It was a huge explosion. It was like a big bomb going off. Uh, And suddenly the house was engulfed in flames. My father ran across the lawn, separating uh, our house from, from his, into that burning building and rescued that man. And that was just the kind of guy my father always was. Here he was, you know, five children of his own, uh, uh, all, all young kids. And yet he, he took that risk because he could not, not do it where there was that need. He had the courage to, to run in there and rescue that man. He was a world war II hero drafted, uh, in, mm-hmm. in uh, 1944, his troop carrier going into Normandy and Brittany, uh, was sunk crossing the channel by a German, mm-hmm. you know, Roughly half the men died. He was one of the ones who survived, fished out of the channel, went on to fight with great distinction and valor in Normandy and Brittany. He's a member of the Legion of Honor of France. Now, my father's life and my life are very different in so many ways. My father never went to college. His father was a coal miner. So was my mother's father. I come from coal mine stock. Uh, he um, he doesn't have fancy degrees. Um, he, um, he, he doesn't know quite exactly what I do. <laughs> I mean, not that I'm a professor, but well, he doesn't read the kinds of things I write or he doesn't, he doesn't read the kinds of things I read. Uh, uh, he has on occasion given it a try. <laughs> hasn't gotten very, very far. Um, so he's not an intellectual person. He's not a highly educated, he's an intelligent person, but he's not a highly educated uh, person. He, he does not live in the realm of of uh, ideas, uh, but he is my hero. He is the greatest man I've ever known. Uh, and really everything that has gone well in my life, and that's an awful lot of things I've been so blessed and so fortunate, is attributable to him and my mother. But you know, really especially because I grew up as a boy, of course, I'm a boy, I'm a man, uh, to the model, the role model that he was for me. Well, you're, you've gotten me going, Marie. Once you get me going, <laughs> I almost uh, but so many kids today, you know, especially boys, but girls too, it's so important for girls to see what a man is and what how a man should behave toward a woman, how a woman should expect a man and demand that a man in her life behave toward her. All of this, you know, I learned from my father. And, and today, you know, kids are growing up without fathers. So many kids growing up yes. without 
fathers. That's certainly true, as has been for a long time. You think back to the Moynihan Report in 1960. Yes. In the African-American community. But yes. It's the African-American community. When, when Moynihan did that report in 1965, he was ringing the alarm bell. Yes. Because 25% of African-American children were born without a father in the picture, basically. And uh, he knew that would be a catastrophe uh, for this vulnerable, historically highly uh, uh, unjustly treated, discriminated against community. At that time, the overall out-of-wedlock birth rate was only about 5%. Mm -hmm. Today, it's over 70% in the African-American community and yes. over 40% with the general population. In the Latino community, it is my understanding that it's a, a bit above 50% uh, now. Um, th there are real consequences for everybody, but especially for children uh, uh, in, in this. I mean, boys in particular need a strong role model, um, somebody who models the virtues that we need in our young men. I mean, it, uh, you know, I don't want to to veer away from personal responsibility, but when I see some of the atrocities that that boys yes. commit, yes, they're responsible. Yes, I got that, and I, I'm not going to give anybody a pass. But then I look at how they were brought up, no yes. dad in the picture, and and I say to myself, well, oh, what do you expect? What do you expect? They didn't have what I had. They didn't have a strong father, somebody who could be a hero to them, a role model, model the virtues that we need in young men, the strength, the courage, the humility, the, the willingness and desire to serve, to serve their wives, to serve their, their children. Fatherhood is a vocation. It's all about serving. You're getting me very emotional because these are all things that my husband and I talk about. I talk about motherhood being a ministry. Yeah. Um, he also, uh, one of the things that we say in our home quite often is the greatest gift that you can give your children is a strong marriage. Absolutely. I did not have that role model. I am one of those children uh, who did not grow up with a father. So I didn't have that role model. And here I am. Uh, in two months, I'll celebrate my 33rd wedding anniversary, something oh, that I did not congratulations. expect. Thank God you. <laughs> so, you know, you're right. Those gifts. And one of the things that he's teaching our daughter, my daughter's 21. We have two children who are adopted, who did, we adopted them as older children. And so they also did not have those role models. And so one of the things that he's working with her around is every morning when he drives her to work, he opens the door for her, which she, you know, is an independent woman and I can do it myself, dad. And he's like, yeah. no, this is what you deserve. This is what you demand of the person that you eventually, you know, this is a, a model for relationships. Right. It's that not you are protected. Right. It's not about the door. Yes. That's it just is, a symbol. Yes, and symbolism is, symbol. is really important. Yes. Uh, it's yes. all about, you know, symbolizing treating someone with respect, that with is right. dignity. Somebody is special. I, I once heard the great late, unfortunately, uh, child psychologist Yuri Bronfenbrenner from Cornell give a talk about um, why children end up doing badly and why children end up doing well. And this was a very fancy Ivy League academic sociologist, Yuri Bronfenbrenner. But his, um, his account of them ended up being something very simple, something that ordinary parents and grandparents do understand. Professor Bronfenbrenner said, all kids need one thing. That is, they need somebody in their lives who is just crazy about them. Yeah. Someone who just really thinks they're important, really thinks they're special, and sends that signal 
uh, uh, to them. And I think that is what parents parents do and grandparents do. They, they send the signal that we're crazy about you. We really love you. You're really, really special. You're really important. And there are various symbolic ways that we that we signify that. And it's not the particular exercise, opening the door, uh, giving a gift, uh, whatever it is. It's not the particular thing. It's the it's what the thing communicates. It's what's That's that right. that little activity of honoring communicates to the kid that people are crazy about him. They love him. They're, he's really special or she. That's absolutely right. And to your statistic, uh, you know, right now I think it's only seventeen percent of children who reach in the black community, who reach the age of 17 with both parents in the home. And that's See, a tragedy. This is tragic. That this is, is a tragedy. Yeah. Boys need a mom and a dad. They, they, you need both, both parents. There's some things that, that the mother gives and models. And there's some things that the dad does. And whether you're a boy or a girl, you really, you need both of those kinds of care and influence maternal and paternal. Care and uh, and and influence and 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 they're single parents, especially single moms, since you know many of in most cases it's the mom who ends up taking care of the the children where where the parents are not together. Uh, and single parents, single moms, very often do a fantastic job, heroic. They they are heroes themselves. Yeah. They are self sacrificial, but they themselves will tell you, you know, th this is not the ideal. This is not what we really need. We need mom and dad together and modeling that relationship to their, to their children and conferring on those children the inestimable blessing of both maternal and paternal influences and care. You're absolutely right. When we were going through the adoption process, our children's biological mother um, stalled the procedures at a certain point, and she said she really needed to talk to us first and kind of meet us. Um, I don't blame her. I don't blame what, her at all. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but one of the things that she said, and we talked for several hours, one of the things that she said was, I want my children to have a mother and a father that's so important to me. And so you're absolutely right that there are women who are absolutely heroic. And my mother was one of them. However, as we talked about having the model for marriage, seeing how people disagree and still love each other. I did not yeah. have that model. Uh, we don't stop and quit and walk away and, and, and yeah. divorce and those sorts of things, that there is a way to disagree and still love each other. Um, and so being able to model that for our children um, and for them to see, even though you might be the opposite sex child of that parent, to see, as you said, that model of how we treat a wife, um, you know, how we treat a husband and how people communicate. It's so important. And, and so many things are never... Um, where we sit down necessarily and have these conversations with our children. Of course, that's true. But, you know, sometimes that expression, uh, sometimes you're the only Bible that other people will ever read, you know, yeah. being able to be that example so that kids see, because I can say anything, but for my children to see my actions and how intentional they are, that's what uh, will endure. I uh, say in that little reflection that you uh, kindly mentioned um, that, um, it is very important to teach by precept, very mm -hmm. important. Words matter. Having those conversations really matter. So it's important to teach by precept. 
but it's also important. And in, in fact, I say it's even more important to teach by example. That is right. Your kids are going to pick up more from what you do and don't do. That's right. From what you say or or don't say. Now that, that doesn't excuse people from saying things. You need to say things as well. That's right. We need to we need to uh, we need to teach with our lips, but also with uh, with our example. I think it was Saint Francis of Assisi. I might have the saint wrong, but one of the great saints uh, 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 exhorted his uh, followers to preach the gospel always. When necessary, use words. <laughs> right, exactly right. Now, in 2021, you wrote that in 2022, quote, the Supreme Court will hold that there is no constitutional right to abortion. Uh, there is no constitutional right to elective abortions. In Dobbs v. Jackson, Women's Health Organization, a case pending before the court, it will return the issue to the states for the first time in 49 years, end quote. What was your reaction to the court overturning Roe v. Wade? And uh, what have been the long-term positive consequences uh, beyond lives being saved? Do you foresee any potential negative consequences on the horizon? Well, my first reaction, of course, was I was very gratified. I've worked in the movement to accomplish this goal since yes. I was an adolescent. Uh, it was a grave injustice. Uh, to unborn children. Uh, I, I think no uh, favor to mothers who are placed under such pressure so often, especially uh, younger women who find themselves in need are placed under pressure from boyfriends and yes. uh, sometimes from parents, uh, sometimes from employers uh, to quote, get rid of it and so forth. Um, so I, I was gratified that the court did the right thing here also because it restores the integrity of constitutional law yeah. Just about everybody in my business, in the uh, constitutional law business, knows, whether or not they're willing to say it publicly, knows that Roe versus Wade was a decision with no basis whatsoever, none in the text, the logic, the structure, or the historical understanding of the Constitution. The Supreme Court in 1973, a bunch of Nixon appointees at the time, actually, simply manufactured this so-called constitutional right out of thin air. It was a pure fabrication. And it's had a very destructive role in our constitutional jurisprudence because it became a license for judges simply to act on the basis of their own political or moral or religious predilections, as opposed to actually trying to follow what the Constitution says and and requires. So this this decision, uh, this wrong needed to be uh, righted, not only for the sake of basic justice toward a vulnerable segment of the human family, but also for the integrity of our constitutional law. But beyond that gratification, I have to tell you, Marie, my, my very first reaction, which you'll find in a tweet that I uh, sent out on Twitter just after learning that my prediction that Dobbs would uh, overturn Roe versus Wade had come true, my very first reaction was to remember Lincoln's words from the second inaugural address. I said, remember that Lincoln said that we must now go forward to complete our work with malice toward none and charity for all. We mustn't demonize our opponents. We need to recognize that the people who opposed us, the people who are today on the day Dobbs was overturned, angry and hurt and upset are not monsters. They're not bad people. We believe they are misguided in their 
view of the status of the unborn child, but they're not bad people. They are genuinely concerned with the well-being of women, women's equality, women's health. And those are good. Those are legitimate. We are too. We, we too believe in women's equality. We too believe in protecting women's health. And there are things that need to be done on both of those uh, fronts. So let's not demonize our opponents. Let's be magnanimous. Let's find ways to work together so that we can protect both mother and child alike. Our motto really needs to be love them both. And we need, yes. to, be, we need to be living that out every day as the pro-life movement has actually for its yes. entire existence. We don't get credit for it. The media no. demonizes us. But the truth is that we've been reaching out in love and care and compassion to women in need for all these years. Uh, and many women have been served by the wonderful work, mostly of other women, actually. Yes. Mostly of other women in our wonderful uh, pro-life clinics uh, all, over the, all over the country. Flying in the face of media hostility and the yes. hostility of elites and many, many wealthy uh, people. The... The people who work in those clinics are are, are not uh, high-paid executives. Uh, uh, they are ordinary women, for the most part women, just but ordinary people who have a heart for their sisters in need and for the babies that those sisters are carrying and want to reach out in love and concern and compassion uh, to help. And we just now need to be doing more of that. So, so my reaction was yes, to be gratified at a good result a just result, one that restores our constitutional integrity, but to remember the lesson of Lincoln with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as Lincoln said, as God gives us to see the right, let us go forward to complete our work. That's absolutely right. And as you say, the work of pregnancy resource centers to see that not only um, is the quote unquote problem solved, but that these are people who actually provide uh, care through the child, uh, through toddlerhood. I mean, till they're three in some cases. Oh, oh absolutely. It doesn't yeah. stop when the baby's born. I mean, I, exactly I, I, right. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, I, I've had the honor of uh, speaking at fundraising events for those uh, centers. Uh, th this is one area where I, I never charge a speaking fee uh, because I, it's my contribution to the work of these centers, the life-saving, yes. woman-affirming, uh, caring, loving work of these uh, centers. And, and when I've spoken, I've met the most wonderful people. These, these are saints and heroes. They really are. That's absolutely right. I mean, providing child care, child care assistance, rental yeah. assistance, all of those things, you know, and the movement, as you said, we're painted as, you know, terrible people make that you all you only care about uh, when they're in the womb, you don't care about after they're born. You know, as I mentioned, my children that we adopted were older. Um, and so it, it really is about caring about life from the womb to the tomb. Yeah, that's uh, right. And, uh, you know, the other thing that our movement uh, deserves credit for that it doesn't get, but it really does deserve is the care that we extend to the physically disabled and the cognitively handicapped. Yes, that is absolutely you know, we right. We genuinely recognize the profound, inherent, and equal dignity of each and every member of the human family including those with severe cognitive disabilities, including those who suffer congenital, severely um, impaired cognitive uh, states. Uh, they have the same dignity, the same basic rights as anybody else. And as a culture, we're beginning to lose our sense of their dignity and worth. 
we're moving in a horrible direction toward the old mentality that gave us eugenics in an earlier yes. generation where we see cognitively disabled people as lesser less than fully human thinking of them as useless eaters to use that horrible expression that genesis used and was picked up eventually by the nazis we have to remember marie this is very important we have to remember the nazis didn't invent eugenics the Nazis didn't invent the concept or create the concept of lives unworthy of life, Laban's unspurten Laban. I'm going to speak plainly now. I'm going to speak truly. So people get ready. You know who invented that? Western progressive elites. Yes. The people who created the doctrine of life unworthy of life were not these thuggish Nazis. They were highly educated, affluent, sophisticated Western liberals in America, in Britain, in Germany. What the Nazis did was pick up the concept and run with it. That is exactly The progressive right. movement went in for eugenics hook, line, and sinker. Look at the work of my Princeton colleague, Tim Leonard, on this. It is damning. Yes. Until the Nazis came along and gave eugenics a bad name and a black eye. And then suddenly the progressives shifted. Thank God they gave it up. But they then tried to tried to forget that they had ever embraced it. Right. I don't forget. I remember where it came from. So let's not think because we're well-educated, because we're affluent, because we're elite, because we're sophisticated, that we can't fall into terrible, unjust, immoral ways of thinking. It has happened and it can happen again. That's absolutely right. And to touch on that, in your book, Conscience and Its Enemies, you argue that uh, a decent society rests upon three pillars. One of the pillars that you list is family, uh, defined as, quote, based on the marital commitment of husband and wife, end quote. Given how broadly family is often redefined today to include single parents, cohabitating but unmarried parents, uh, same-sex parents, and so on. Is the role of the family still indispensable or uh, indispensable if this broad definition stands? Well, and if the family dissolves as a concept, then it can't do the, the indispensable work that, uh, that we need it to do. Uh, we're, we're now well beyond things like uh, uh, same-sex partnerships uh, uh, yeah. being defined as marriages. We're now at the point where legal recognition is being given to multi-party relationships, not not just old-fashioned polygamy, although that's now, of course, yes. being restored as well, uh, but what's known as polyamory. In, in polygamy, yes. there'd be one man who would have separate marriages to three different women. So, mm -hmm. So Tom might be married at the same time to Harriet in one marriage and to Jenna in another marriage and to Jill in another marriage. Polyamory, which is an unprecedented phenomenon, something that we don't find in the Bible or in ancient civilizations mm -hmm. or anything like that, is where three or more people are in a sexual partnership altogether as a unit, not in separate, separate marriages. And then we have three jurisdictions in Massachusetts now that have conferred legal recognition on those partnerships. And that will soon result in a demand for the redefinition of marriage yes. to include those kinds of partnerships. So um, we, we see the very concept of the family dissolving uh, in our law and in our culture. One thing that really worries me, and I get to, I, I'm blessed, I get to teach these incredible students. They're just 
brilliant and they're good kids. They're great kids. Um, and, and the Princeton admissions office keeps a, a, a constant flow of these fantastic young men and women uh, for us to teach here at this university. But something that really worries me when I, among, among the kids I teach is that um, many kids do not look forward to marriage. Yeah. They don't see it as important. Yeah. It's not on the list of priorities. You know, it's not up there with getting a partnership at Goldman Sachs okay. and making a lot of money and having a lot of social status and stuff like that. Some kids will just tell you, you know, I just don't see the point of marriage. I, I just don't want to be married. I mean, mm -hmm. I might have, you know, different relationships with different people. One might be primary. One might last longer than others, but I don't, I don't see the point of marriage. And even among some kids who do look forward to marriage, they, they, they will just tell you, we're not going to have kids. There's been no, uh, you're, you're, you're the mother of your adopted children. You know, there's no blessing in your life. As hard as bringing up kids is today, and it, really it's always been a challenge to bring sure. it up. It's also the greatest blessing ever. And so it breaks my heart when I hear these wonderful kids, these wonderful Princeton students are so brilliant and they're so good and they have good hearts saying, you know, I don't really want to have kids. Now, what did we do to create a culture in which we have not passed along to them an understanding of the joy and the fulfillment of having and rearing children and someday having grandchildren, which I'm looking forward to, and and yes. and and being being truly a family. You That's know? right. What what have we gone wrong? How did we let this happen? It's not my students' fault that they think this way. And now remember, now not all of them do, but a substantial number do. Now, where did they get this? Yes. Who failed to communicate to them, to transmit to them the belief, the understanding? It's more than a belief. It's an understanding that parenthood, having children, bringing up children is a great blessing and joy. That is absolutely right. And I want to touch on that also. According to the Pew Research Center, point. 3% of Americans over 50 identify as transgender or non-binary. When the question is asked to those under 30, that number is 5.1%. What explains this 1,600% increase in self-identifying as trans or non-binary among groups uh, only 20 or so years apart? The cultural uh, movement toward uh, inculcation of a worldview yes. in which people see themselves and others essentially as psyches inhabiting bodies. So they identify the real self with the psyche, the mind, the conscious and desiring aspect of the self, or you want to put a religious spin on it, the spirit or the soul, and identify the body as a subpersonal vehicle for the real self, the real person, which is the, the psychic part. The um, trend toward inculcation of that understanding goes back now really quite some time. Um, but we're now feeling the real life, real world effects of it. It, 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 it was the engine that ran the sexual revolution, actually. Um, it's, a, it's really a version or revivification of the old uh, doctrine of dualism, person-body dualism that was identified with Gnosticism uh, in um, late antiquity, the early period of the Christian church, uh, for example, Gnosticism was a, was a heresy that was rooted out of Christianity in the first two or three 
centuries of uh, the Christian uh, era, but central to it was the idea that what human beings are are non-bodily persons, psyches, minds, spirits that inhabit non-personal bodies. Now, if you identify yourself as your psyche, the conscious and desiring aspect of the self, then your identity will be constituted not by the whole you, body, mind, and spirit, or body and soul, but rather by your feelings, your internal feelings about yourself. That's the real you. And on this dualistic understanding of what human beings are, which is, is profoundly misguided for reasons I can go into if you want to go into the philosophical argument. But uh, once you adopt that dualism of self and body, then there's no reason to think that there couldn't be a mismatch between the physical body and the inner person being the psyche or the soul. So if I feel like X, then I'm X. If I feel like a disabled person, even if I'm not physically disabled, but I identify because of my feelings of disability with the disabled, consider myself disabled, then I've got a mismatch. And this causes some people, there's a particular kind of body dysmorphia or dysphoria that causes some people to try to get their uh, lower limbs amputated yes, so that they can be their true selves as disabled people. We see something similar with the idea of gender, so-called gender dysphoria, that, well, yes, I'm biologically a male, but psychologically, which is the real me, I'm a woman, I'm female. And so there's a mismatch. And so I've got to alter the part that's not the real me, the vehicle, the non-personal aspect of the self. I've got to alter that with mastectomies or, or other surgeries, hormones, and so forth to, to, to bring the body into line with the mind or the, the, the soul or the psyche, which is the, which is the real self. Sometimes this is called the turn to subjectivism and it manifests itself in a kind of nominal that I can, that what I am is just what I decide to be, what I call myself. I can just purely manufacture myself. There's no, there's no natural non-conventional, reality that I need to be answerable to. Uh, there's, there's simply my own manufactured um, sense of myself. And in fact, I manufacture my own universe for all intents and, and, and purposes. And I think that's um, the chickens coming home to, to roost. That, that worldview is profoundly uh, out of whack with the great teachings of the historic traditions of faith with Judaism, Christianity, Islam, even some of the Eastern uh, traditions, but it's become a dogma of modern secular progressivism or what's sometimes called woke uh, ideology. And I think it's having a very, very bad effect on, uh, on young people. That's absolutely right. And probably one of the best and most concise uh, definitions that I, I, I've seen. So thank you for that. What is the Academic Freedom Alliance? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked about that. So um, academic freedom, freedom of speech on campus for, for faculty and students alike is really under assault uh, all yes. over the country. Yes. Uh, and the uh, assault sometimes comes from the outside uh, and sometimes comes from the right, where people want to ban certain ideas in state universities, for example, or the quote teaching of certain ideas like critical race theory in certain state universities. So sometimes they, these, these assaults on academic freedom really do come from the right and from people outside the university. But more often, let's be blunt, let's be truthful, let's be honest, let's be candid. More often, they come from the left these days. 
the left historically claimed to be the champions of free speech. And there were times when they really were. No more. Now, thank God there are still some people on the left who are true champions of free speech. My beloved friend Cornell West, a very good example of that. Someone who mm -hmm. honestly believes in free speech, stands up for free speech. But on the whole, the left has gone in exactly the wrong direction. In fact, if you say free speech on a campus now, that's considered a right-wing cause, a deeply conservative cause. And the attacks come in the name of woke ideology, mm -hmm. where people are uh, punished or canceled or doxxed uh, or subjected to abuse of various kinds, discrimination, because they've challenged this or that woke dogma about, say, transgenderism, for example, yeah. or critical race theory or some policy of diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, so with this happening all over the country, uh, a group of us representing people from across the ideological spectrum got together and decided we would create an alliance of professors to stand up for academic freedom for everybody, right, left, center, non-classifiable, true academic freedom, the right of people to think for themselves, people being faculty as well as students, think for themselves, say what they think, defend their positions in, in public without discrimination, without punishment, so that the academic enter enterprise could accomplish what it's meant to accomplish, which is advance the cause of truth-seeking. A condition of truth-seeking, and universities are supposed to be truth-seeking institutions, yes. a condition of truth-seeking is the freedom to think, to inquire, to discuss, to argue, to express. And without those conditions being in place, you're just not going to get truth-seeking. You're going to get indoctrination. You're going to get conformism. You're going to get groupthink the very opposite of education. So we formed the Academic Freedom Alliance. And basically the Academic Freedom Alliance, Murray, is based on uh, something parallel to the fifth um, uh, point in the NATO charter, Article 5 of the NATO charter. Uh, you might remember that that's the, the, the article that says we will treat an attack on one as an attack on all. So all the members, the thousands now of members of the Academic Freedom Alliance are all pledged to treat an attack on anybody's academic freedom, whether we agree with the person or not, on the substance of that person's views. We'll treat an attack on anyone's academic freedom as an attack on our own academic freedom. And so we've been very active speaking out against things like mandatory diversity statements, uh, uh, speaking out against uh, uh, the mistreatment of professors or students, but we're, we're the, the organization is an alliance of professors, uh, speaking out against discrimination against professors, punishment of professors yes. for speaking their minds. And we end up, any of us, whether you're on the right or the left, since we're defending people across the spectrum, every member of our, of our alliance is defending the rights of people they radically disagree with. I'm defending the rights of people on the left. I am not on the left. There are people on the left, like Brother Cornell, who are, who are defending the rights of people on the right, even though they're not on the, on the right. Um, we have been there uh, weighing in with university presidents and other university officials and boards when we've had cases of people who have been suffering punishment or discrimination or sanctions of various sorts for their free expression. Uh, we uh, have amassed a legal defense fund, which we use to provide legal uh, support for uh, members of our 
alliance and in some cases for non-members, although there's, we, we don't promise to provide support for non-members. Uh, funds are <laughs> limited. Uh, but sometimes we have where the cause could be served by doing so, even provided financial support for legal representation for non-members who, uh, whose academic freedom uh, has been uh, violated or jeopardized. So it's a great organization. I'm very proud to have been among its, its founders. It's doing fantastic work. And uh, I think you're gonna be hearing more from us in the, in, the, in the future. I wish we didn't need to exist. I wish there was no need for the Academic Freedom Alliance, but the situation's bad. It looks like it's getting worse. So, worse. so there is a need for our alliance and we're gonna be there to meet that need. That's absolutely right. When you see uh, professors at UCLA who are quitting because uh, uh, just that reason, uh, not being able to uh, teach in the classroom without being labeled as whatever it is, uh, homophobic or whatever. Racist, um, bigot, Exactly. Transfer, whatever you know, word you want. Exactly. And, you know, I'm of the age. Uh, I know we're not supposed to talk about a woman's age, but I'm of the age <laughs> at 58, um, where I remember Berkeley as the beacon of free yeah. speech. And now you've got uh, campus escorts uh, taking Ann Coulter and Ben Shapiro off campus or, or blocking their appearance altogether. Berkeley. It's outrageous. Yeah. Where Mario Savio founded the free speech movement. That's right. I can remember. I'm I'm old enough. I'm older than you. You're a kid. Uh, I'm old enough to remember Mario Savio and the free speech movement at Berkeley. Very, very, very vividly. I remember that. Yes. Well, if you're just. But isn't it interesting, Marie, that, that, that what you and I remember from, from our younger days uh, as a liberal cause, as a left-wing cause, free speech has now been transmogrified, transformed yeah. into a right-wing cause. It's yes. now a concern. Who's speaking up for free speech? Well, we do have some some yeah. people on the left, the Cornell, for example, and others, but but more people now on the conservative side. And I suppose it's a matter of whose ox is being gored, who's being victimized. Yes. So often now the, uh, the victims are either conservatives or old-fashioned liberals who are not woke enough. Although I think it's fair to say you can never really be woke enough because some victims are themselves people who are pretty woke. And in some cases, even people themselves who participated in the vilification of other people who now suddenly find the mob, our, our own version of the Jacobins of the Sanskalat, now all of a sudden themselves victims. Because yes. you can never be woke enough. As I, as I said once, you know, being woke means not knowing what you're going to be required to believe tomorrow. That's right. That's absolutely right. If you are just joining us, our guest for this segment has been Robert George. Uh, please tell us how we can continue to follow your work and find you online. Uh, well, I'm at McCormick Professor uh, on Twitter. Um, I also have a Facebook page. Unfortunately, I've filled up my uh, quota, my limit. Facebook only allows you to have 5,000 uh, friends, so I'm at the 5,000, but I have a waiting list and people are willing or, or welcome to get uh, onto the, uh, onto get the a fan list. page, get a fan page. There's no, I, I, I have one. Yeah, I, ha I do have one. <laughs> there, there's a fan, there's a fan page as well. Um, I have a personal website. Uh, it's got all my videos and, and writings are available there and things like that. It's robertpgeorge.com. Just Robert P for Peter, robertpgeorge.com. Uh, also, my two courses, the, my two big lecture courses, I teach some other courses, but I have two big lecture courses. One is called Constitutional Interpretation. The other is called Civil Liberties, and they are both available for free online 
through edX, the, the, the course company called edX. And I'm very grateful to edX and to Princeton University, my employer, for, for offering uh, those courses to people for free. So anyone who wants to hear my lectures and, and, uh, and take the course online is, is welcome to do that. Well, excellent. I'm going to run over and, and get on the waiting list to be one of your Facebook friends. Uh, <laughs> but it's been wonderful to have you. Maybe next time you'll bring your banjo. Oh, I'd love to do that. Yeah, I'd love that. You never have to ask me twice. You never have to ask any West Virginian twice to play the banjo. Excellent. Well, thank you for being our guest today. My pleasure, Marie. Thank you. Okay, we've come to that part of the show where we bring DK in. DK, come on in. Hola. Well, hello. So what did you think of that? That was pretty awesome, huh? Yeah, it goes to show there are a lot of smart people in New Jersey. <laughs> There's a smart person in New Jersey. I'm <laughs> yeah. kidding. I'm kidding. So, <laughs> so what did you think about that? That, that, was, that fascinating. was fascinating. Yeah. Uh, you know, at one point he picked up pretty early in, in the interview that I hadn't thought of before I heard him speak was how Nazism was based in uh, Western eugenics. Yes. And I found this quote from uh, George Bernard Shaw. I guess most people know who he is. He yes. was a famous playwright. Uh, he wrote um, Man and Superman and Pygmalion. And he won a, he won a Nobel Prize for his, for his work also. I think he was also the father-in-law of James Joyce. So he's a perfect example of uh, the intellectual Western movement of that time. And here's a quote from him. The notion that persons should be safe from extermination as long as they do not commit willful murder or levy war against the crown or kidnap or throw vitriol is not only to limit social responsibility unnecessarily and to privilege the large range of intolerable misconduct that lies outside them, but to divert attention from the essential justification for extermination, which is always incorrigible social incompatibility and nothing else. So there you have been one of uh, Western civilization's most prominent intellectuals is the essential justification for, for the Holocaust, that you don't have to be innocent in order to be exterminated. And I was very relieved, very pleased, I should say, that uh, Professor George picked up on that. Well, and you know who else uh, would fall under that category? Uh, a woman by the name of Margaret Sanger, who founded the Negro Project and the uh, institution that would eventually become Planned Parenthood. Absolutely. And she's probably the most famous example of how the West expired Nazism. Yeah, absolutely. So what else is on your mind today? No, I was... It was talking about government and how government deceives us. And I found the perfect example of, of that less than a week ago with uh, Mayorkas gave a speech condemning the, um, the whipping of migrants, black migrants by these border agents. And let's, let's, let's listen to that, uh, the speech now. As of this morning, there are no longer any migrants in the camp underneath the Del Rio International Bridge. I will walk through what we have done, how we have done it, explain the processes, and provide data that you have requested. But first, I, I want to make uh, one important point. In the midst of meeting these challenges, we 
our entire nation saw horrifying images that do not reflect who we are, who we aspire to be, or the integrity and values of our truly heroic personnel in the Department of Homeland Security. The investigation into what occurred has not yet concluded. We know that those images painfully conjured up the worst elements of our nation's ongoing battle against systemic racism. We have been swift and thorough in our response. First, we immediately contacted the Office of Inspector General and launched an investigation into the events that were captured in the disturbing images of horse patrol units. We ceased the use of horse patrol units in the area. The agents involved in these incidents have been assigned to administrative duties and are not interacting with migrants while the investigation is ongoing. I directed the personnel from the CBP Office of Professional Responsibility to be on site in Del Rio full time to ensure adherence to the policies, training and values of our department. The highest levels of the CBP Office of Professional Responsibility are leading the investigation, which will conclude quickly. The results of the investigation I will make public. The actions that are taken as a, are as a result of the, uh, what we have seen in those images, the investigation uh, will be compelled, the results will be compelled by the facts that are adduced and nothing less. Let me be clear, the department does not tolerate any mistreatment of any migrant and will not tolerate any violation of its values, principles, and ethics. So there we have it. We have an important official in our U.S. government willfully and deliberately misleading us about something as horrible as uh, border agents whipping innocent migrants. And it, it leads to the question of how often our government willf willfully deceives us, the government in alliance with uh, the media who always echoes this in some cases and, and probably in this case encourages the deception in order to further the cause. We talk about certain shootings that uh, BM, BLM riot over yeah. that when the dust settles, like the, we learned that, for example, Jacob Blake went to his car to pick up a knife or to escape. So it wasn't just a white cop decided to fill his quota of shooting black people that day, that it was, it was a justifiable shooting and, and other things um, that we should mention. So what are your thoughts about that? Well, I'm laughing because I'm um, just the idea that the that your government would tell you the truth has become sort of a joke. Um, you should be able to trust the people that you send to Washington or to represent you. I mean, we're a representative uh, democracy, obviously a constitutional republic. Alan West would shoot me if he heard me say that if I didn't say that. Um, but uh, we are a representative democracy. We, we choose those who represent us. And yet we are lied to and um, facts are misrepresented and we are coerced into doing things. Um, 
And it's amazing to me because I think if I weren't in the news cycle 24-7 like I am because of all the jobs that I have, I, I wonder what I would believe, what I would think if I were just a person who who was apolitical or apathetic, how people talk about, you know, oh, well, I don't get into politics. I don't like to talk about politics. If I didn't watch, if I just watched the news frequently or just the sound bites, what would I, what would be the picture of America that I have? Um, it's shocking to me how much corruption there is. It's shocking to me how many lies there are. And what's shocking to me about the Mayorkas case is that, you know, here are these border patrol agents who are sacrificing their lives every single day for us, um, who see some of the most horrific things, bloated bodies that are decomposed and absolutely just um, horrific to see. Um, children who have been sexually assaulted. Um, we've talked about the rape trees and those kinds of things, just absolutely the most horrific things to see, but we're talking about them and that the, they're doing these terrible things. Um, when one, it was a lie and two, they are protecting our borders because our government will not do the work. So, um, and then to find out that it's a lie just is absolutely, I don't have words for it because it's 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 demeaning to those who uh, put their lives on the line every day, and it is um, obfuscating what the real issue is, and that is that we need to have our borders secure, all the fentanyl that's coming in. Um, I've said from the very earliest days of ACONs that that's how terrorists would come in, forget all the drug trafficking and the human and sex trafficking and all that kind of stuff. Not saying that that's not important because it's absolutely important. But I said, you know, and hello, terrorists can come in too. Um, and that's been proven to be the case. But just we need to protect our borders. And okay, fine. Our immigration system is broken. Fix it. I mean, instead of sending all these gazillion dollars elsewhere, instead of um, silly things like, I don't know, I, there are so many things. I mean, just uh, in December, watch Twitter on uh, Festivus when uh, Senator Rand Paul comes up with his uh, lists of wasteful things. I mean, studying pig poop and all these stupid things that, that we, we uh, spend money on. You know, let's fix the immigration system. Let's fix the border. Let's fix all of these things. But no, we want to demonize people um, and make people that are protecting us the bad guys. Yeah, it's, it's alarming how they want to manipulate the truth and how they have so many allies in the media willing to help them do that. I saw in the paper today how Biden pressured a Texas mayor, I think it was El Paso, but I'm not 100% sure, not to declare a, a state of emergency over the number of migrants, immigrants coming into his uh, town, his city, because he would look, Biden look bad. So, but I want to circle back before we leave about something um, George said about the eugenic movement. It's interesting that the same language used by the eugenicists of the early uh, uh, 20th century, like Bernard Shaw and Margaret Singer, are still being used today. Oh. Um, when you hear them talk and how they devalue life, it's the same way that we are being taught to devalue life. 
especially life of the unborn, but also life for the people who are living in poverty, life of the elderly and uh, and life of people who are who suffer from a mental handicap and but it's mostly the life of the people of people who are not yet born and even up to the point of their birth and sometimes even after birth we see them referred to as uh, growth of cells that they mm-hmm. don't count as human lives and we have these strange debates that is it a life at conception? Is it a life at some magic point in the second trimester? Or maybe maybe after three weeks they count as life, but not before three weeks they count as life. And do we hear their heartbeat or is that a machine pumping? So we try to make us some sort of magical pseudo-scientific point where a life can be counted as life. And the goalpost keeps getting moved further back until we see something like we see in California well, which essentially yes. legalizes infanticide. Yes. I mean, it sends a very clear message that when a, a newborn dies and there's no investigation possible into the death of the newborn, then what's to stop the a small percentage of a deranged parent to from killing the, the child? So, You know, it doesn't make sense to me. What really doesn't make sense to me, there's a couple things. One is there are safe haven laws. So after a child is born, you have so many days to take your child and surrender your child alive to people who want to adopt. Um, you, you can go to a fire station, a hospital, a police station. There's a number of places where you can go. There are baby boxes now where you can place the child safely and the child will immediately be rescued. Those kinds of things. So that's number one. Number two is they also have um, when you are in a clinic, as I said, one of those safe havens is a clinic, a hospital, as I said, when you are uh, having an abortion and your child uh, survives that abortion, uh, instead of letting that child die, as Barack Obama signed into legislation not to provide care, why not surrender your child because you're in a medical facility? So it's not about protecting life at all. It's not about saving life at all. And as Robert George said, there are pregnancy resource centers who will provide for the woman and the child, the whole entity together, provide diapers and rental assistance and all of those kind of child care, all of those kinds of things up until the child is three, um, which is more than any abortion clinic has ever done. And I want to talk about this too. Something that I saw today where Stacey Abrams had the unmitigated gall to say that because people are hurting in these inflationary recessionary times that maybe abortion is the best thing to be able to do because you know who kids eat and 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 have your grocery bill will go up and your your uh gas because you have to drive them all around and stuff so that's just a great reason to have an abortion that is probably one of the most tone deaf things that I think I've ever heard. And I've heard a lot of things, but Hey, you know, save the environment, abort your kid. Instead of saying, I'm going to work with my colleagues in my party and across the aisles, because this inflation, the guy that you installed in office, by the way, um, you know, inflation was not like this four years ago. 
So, you know, instead of examining the reason, oh, well, let's just find another reason to abort, you know, something that's an inconvenience or that's useless to me. That's how casually we take life. Well, I'm just going to add one more thing. It's one of my favorite quotes from the Mother Teresa. She says, any country that accepts abortion is not teaching these people to love, but to use violence to get what they want. That is why the greatest destroyer of love and peace is abortion. We'll end it there. That is another episode in the books for African-American conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. Remember to like, follow, subscribe uh, on uh, YouTube, on uh, brightnews.com, on Spotify, on any of your favorite podcast uh, providers. But that's it for African-American conservatives for this week. I'm Marie. I'm DK. And this is African-American conservatives.